So there's this very visceral feeling that I get. And I've unfortunately had it about a half a dozen times now. For example, when you're on page 172 of a 1014 page case file, and you see the names Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, and realize that what you are about to do is wade through a couple hundred pages of utter bullshit. Jenny, that seems oddly specific, you're probably saying to yourself, to which I would reply, why yes, yes it is. You see, I have lived my own version of Groundhog Day involving Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toll more times than I care to ponder, and it's frustrating as hell every single time. I think I have looked at six or seven case files where their names have popped up earnestly and not as some sort of ironic one-off or jotted-down note, which in hindsight, we know is all that they deserved. If you have not yet seen the Netflix documentary series The Confession Killer, maybe stop listening to this and go watch that first. Or go ahead and listen to this and then hop over and watch it on Netflix. Who the hell am I to tell you what to do, right? The Cliff's Notes version is that Henry Lee Lucas got some kind of sick thrill out of confessing to hundreds of murders all over the country, along with his buddy, Otis Toole. And almost everything that came out of his mouth was a lie. He was pretty good at it, too. Hundreds of unsolved cases where investigators traveled from out of state to sit at this man's side and sometimes show him crime scene photos and ask questions about the unsolved cases that they were working, many of which had long gone cold. They were each desperate for answers for what some call closure on cases that they had been working or that had been sitting on their desks for far too long. Unfortunately, when desperation smacks up against a nonsense maker spouting lies, it's never a good thing. Here, it resulted in way too many cases that were essentially closed because trained investigators believed those lies. And it's a goddamn horror story. The very last thing that any secondary victim deserves. To be dragged down a rabbit hole that looks promising, only to find, sometimes years later, that everything that they had believed was a lie. So when I got to page 172 in the case file on the homicide of Barbara Robellin and saw the name Henry Lee Lucas, I slid backwards in my computer chair, abruptly, I don't mind saying, and stomped into the kitchen to make myself an iced coffee. Do you remember me mentioning the ICE unit in the last episodes during my coverage of the Harry Wolf case? It was buried in the emails between the law enforcement officer reviewing his file and the victim's daughter. The ICE unit, which stood for Investigative Criminal Enforcement, was a group that was brought together in the 1990s to look at cold cases in the Manatee County area in Florida. This unit was created in January of 1994 by Manatee County Sheriff Charlie Wells and was described in a 1998 Bradenton Herald article by Chris Tisch this way. They are the whodunits, the murders that refuse to be solved, despite hundreds of hours detectives spent investigating them. They are the hardest to close, with insufficient physical evidence, unreliable or no witnesses, and little else to go on. And when new homicides begin to pile up every year, these cases often get lost in the shuffle 
after the most solid leads have been exhausted. Back in February of 1994, an early Bradenton Herald article about the ICE unit, written by Beth Muniz, was titled, Cold Arm of Law Tracks Down Wanted Man. The article noted that a newly formed unit at the Manatee County Sheriff's Office had, quote, put its first man on ice Thursday. The unit had tracked down one of Manatee County's five most wanted criminals at the time, a 26-year-old who had stabbed an 18-year-old a little over a year prior in a fight at an apartment complex. The article also said the unit at its inception was looking at 21 open homicides that dated back to 1974. Among those 21 cases would have been the Michelsons, Diane Love, and Harry Wolf, in addition to the cases that I will feature in the next few episodes. By the time the 1998 article featuring the ICE unit was written, their cold case list that was being investigated was printed in the paper. It had 19 names on it. Interestingly, the Michelsons weren't on that list, nor was Barbara Robellan. This article described a little bit more about the ICE unit itself, that it was comprised of 14 people, some from the sheriff's office, all with law enforcement experience. It said the members were unpaid, and they volunteered anywhere from several hours to several days a week, depending on case progress. It went on to say that originally they had started with 22 cases in 1994, and of those, an arrest had been made in two, and a confession was obtained by someone on death row in a third. That third was Henry Lee Lucas, confessing to the killing of Barbara Jean Robellin. The ICE unit got a confession out of serial killer Henry Lee Lucas in connection with the 1978 murder of Barbara Jean Robellin, who was abducted and murdered in Manatee County. Lucas is on death row in Texas, so ICE investigators didn't officially charge him. Lucas has been convicted of 13 murders, and at one time said he was involved in 360 others. Investigators say Lucas and another man abducted and murdered Robellin. Ray Shannon, an investigator on the ICE unit, flew to Houston to interview Lucas. Shannon recalled recently, That was interesting talking to that man. He acted like your long-lost uncle. Very friendly. But I got the feeling he would cut your throat and not even think about it. Very cold individual, but very friendly. It was spooky, especially considering his history. Shannon, co-owner of Shannon Funeral Homes and owner of West Coast Southern Medical Service in Bradenton, has been on the unit since its inception. He has worked part-time for the Bradenton Police Department, but never directly investigated a homicide before he joined the unit. He brings experience in body and cause-of-death examinations to the squad because of his funeral home education. The unit also has a doctor who helps decipher autopsy reports. So it was members of that ICE unit who traveled to interview Henry Lee Lucas and came to the unfortunate determination that he was responsible for Barbara Robellan's homicide. It would be years later that state officials in Texas would begin looking into matters. All we're trying to do is get to the bottom of these false confessions. This was State Attorney General Jim Maddox. At that point, Lucas had recanted and told police he had only ever killed his mother, no one else. He'd already been convicted of 10 killings in Texas and faced the death penalty. He'd also been charged with murders in Maryland, Florida, Louisiana, Georgia, and Arkansas. 
During the state attorney's investigation, when Lucas was asked how he knew information about some of these cases that only the killer would know, he said Texas Rangers and other police departments would take him to crime scenes, tell him how crimes were committed, and in some cases, show him photographs. In the case of Barbara Robellan, it later became pretty clear, based on his interview transcript, that he had been shown pictures from the scene where her body was found. During his interview, he mentioned an orange basket that had been used to remove her body from the ditch where it was found. And that is something that only police on scene and people who had seen the crime scene images would know. He also got other details about her crime wrong. That didn't stop a detective who had originally been involved with the case and who later went on to work for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to review the file and make the determination that Lucas and Toll had committed the crime. Eventually, though, a case file review would be done in 2012 that generally put that matter to bed, identifying many reasons why it was clear the confession of Henry Lee Lucas for the murder of Barbara Robellan was a false confession. But prior to that, Barbara's name was removed from the unsolved list, and investigators moved on. Somewhere along the way, though, her name was quietly put back on that list and appears today on the Manatee County Crime Stoppers Unsolved Crimes webpage, along with six other names, including Diane Love, Harry Wolf, and the Kingfish Boat Ramp Homicides. Now that you know a bit about the twists and turns that a cold homicide case file can take along the way, let's go back to the beginning, which was unfortunately the end for Barbara Robellan. She worked at a 7-Eleven store on U.S. Highway 41 in North Palmetto, Florida. That store still exists in the same spot, which was within short walking distance, actually two-tenths of a mile, from the Skyway Mobile Home Park, where she lived with her husband Harry and their foster son. Barbara Robellan was a tiny gal with short brown hair and brown eyes, and she was on duty on October 23, 1978. Her husband said that she had been in good spirits, and he had even been up to the store around 11.20 p.m. that night to bring her watch up there that she had forgotten when she left home for work. She liked having her watch with her because the clock at the store didn't work. Barbara's husband was only there a few minutes, and he got back home around 10.30, 10 minutes later. This was corroborated by the foster son who had gone with him, and he remembered that because they were back home in time to watch the late show on TV. A barmaid who had closed down her bar that Sunday night at 1 a.m. stopped into the 7-Eleven with a friend and saw Barbara between 1.15 and 1.30. At that time, she was busy stocking cigarettes, and there was no one else in the store. A woman named Linda Watts was the first known person to arrive at the 7-Eleven store and find it unattended. She went in, and she didn't see anyone. She stood around for a couple minutes, and then her daughter, who was in the car, had to go to the bathroom, so she took her inside. They found the bathroom unlocked, which Linda said was not unusual when Barbara was working. When she and her daughter exited the bathroom, she saw that her husband had come in and was looking through the store for the clerk. After they determined that there was nobody else there, they called the Manatee County Sheriff's Office. Linda figured that they had been there about five minutes before they called. And Linda, by the way, would regularly stop at that store and she would talk to Barbara when she came in to deliver papers. 
She said that Barbara was not an outgoing person and did not seem the type to even be working in a 7-Eleven. The two had actually spoken the night before. They talked about two shoplifters that had been in, and Barbara was upset about it. The next witness in the timeline was up feeding her baby around 2 or 2.30 in the morning, and she lived about a half a mile west of the store. She heard a woman scream. She felt that it came somewhere east of her house right after a car went by. By 2.30, the first responder had arrived at the 7-Eleven after another customer, a route salesman who worked for Marita Bread, had also entered the store and found it open and unoccupied. A couple things were done fairly quickly. The store manager, Jack Tuttle, at the behest of law enforcement, responded to the 7-Eleven store to open up the cash register. The drawer was empty except for five dimes two nickels, and a number of food coupons. Just over $100 was believed to be missing from the cash register. They did find $25 beneath the till. The counter area and cash register were dusted for prints, but according to the report, there were no signs of a struggle in the store. Perhaps that's why no pictures were ever taken inside the 7-Eleven or the surrounding area. And that unfortunate detail will come up later in reviews of this case. That night, the grounds outside and the garbage were checked, but nothing of value was found. The first responder did take 35-millimeter black-and-white photos of a person that was found sleeping in the Goodwill box outside the store. This individual was named Lee McWilliams. He told the officer that he had been hitchhiking that night and was dropped off at the 7-Eleven store, although he couldn't say what time. He said he went into the store and bought a can of beer and a pack of bugler tobacco. He said that he talked to the clerk for a couple minutes about the eight-cent sales tax in New York, and then he went across the street to US-41 to continue hitchhiking, which would have been just across the street and in full view of the store. McWilliams said that when he was across the street hitchhiking, there were customers in the store. He said he drank about half of his beer and then, not being able to catch a ride, he walked back across the road, climbed into the Goodwill box at the south side of the store, and fell asleep. He estimated that he had been in there a couple hours. He said he didn't hear anyone scream or hear any unusual voices while he was in the box asleep. The items that McWilliams purchased should have been 97 cents. In checking the cash register receipt, it was found that there were approximately 10 purchases on the tape after a 97-cent entry. He was cooperative, according to the report, and police did find a beer can matching the one that he had said he had purchased across the road on the ground where he had been hitchhiking. He also had a pack of bugler tobacco on his person. McWilliams consented to be fingerprinted and photographed. However, it appears that when police later tried to contact him out of state through the information he gave them for his employer, it was learned that he had given false information. There's documentation in the report to suggest that police tried to track him down, but were never able to. Another one of the things they did in the first few minutes of the investigation is an officer was sent to the Robellan home to notify her husband that his wife was missing and he gave a description of his wife and what she was wearing in addition to that watch that he had earlier 
brought up to the store. Other than finding a man sleeping in the Goodwill box outside and a hundred dollars missing from the till, there wasn't anything else of value that they found at the 7-Eleven. They had a missing woman, and that's about it. Two months later, on Christmas Eve of 1978, Alvino de Leon, a school custodian, stopped on the 2100 block of Canal Road to check his tire and to pee. And this was a very rural dirt road. To his shock, in a ditch beside the road, he saw human remains. Police were called, and a tentative ID was made almost immediately, because where Barbara Robellan's body was found was just a little over one mile from the store, and the body was clad in a 7-Eleven smock. This ditch was described as being 17 feet deep, and about three feet of water was flowing through it. Her name tag had been torn from her shirt, and it wasn't found at the scene. Police would later gather a team and search the area where she was found which was on a dirt road across from an orange grove in an area with grass and weeds that were extremely thick, in some areas reaching six foot high. A metal detector was also used. Several drink cans and condiment packets and a single boot were found. A piece of gray knit material with a dark stain on it was also found. At approximately 4 p.m. that Christmas Eve, police drove over to the Robellan house to notify Barbara's husband, Harry that his wife's body had been found. His mother and his foster son were also present. Imagine getting a death notification like that on Christmas Eve. I can tell you a little something about that from personal experience. It pretty much ruins the holiday for you forever. There will never be a time when you'll be able to spend that holiday without remembering it. Never. In my case, it was a phone call. My brother-in-law died on Christmas Eve in a motor accident, and I got that call bright and early Christmas morning, before anyone else was awake. And then I had to walk into my bedroom and wake up my sleeping husband and tell him that his brother was dead. At that time, our children were very little, so in order to maintain some kind of normalcy for them and not traumatize them, and frankly not knowing what to do in a situation like that where there is no rule book and you're running on shock and devastation, so we watched our babies open their presents while sitting there, not even able to look at each other, slowly coming to the realization that we would never again see someone that we loved. My situation was accident, not homicide, but I don't know what police would have jotted down in their notebooks about my appearance that day, or what they would have noted of my husband's, or if our behavior would have been noted as suspicious in the police report in the event that the death we were dealing with led to a homicide investigation. What police jotted down about Harry Robellan is that he didn't cry. The report says that Harry's mother told them there had been gossip going around the trailer park about trouble in their marriage. When they asked him, Harry said that he thought Jack Tuttle, the store manager, had started those rumors. And those rumors were in the police report. There were multiple vague references to Harry Robellan being a bad husband, multiple rumors of Barbara having a boyfriend, maybe a trucker. 
A few local truckers had been contacted and interviewed after one had seen police activity at the 7-Eleven store that night when she went missing. He noticed a police cruiser, so he mentioned it on the CB radio. And it was like a game of telephone that ended with the message having been translated inaccurately. Police were given the impression that he had seen something at the store. He didn't. All he saw was a police car there around 3.30, which would be expected since by that time they had been at the scene for about an hour. Multiple truckers said that they had seen a green tractor-trailer rig parked at the store, although no such rig was ever identified. That location was not an uncommon one for truckers to stop while passing through, though. In the end, nothing came of all the gossip. Meanwhile, in those two months that he waited from the time that she went missing till she was found, Harry Robellan sought out a fortune teller out of desperation, hoping to learn where his wife was or get any sort of clue. What came of that is what usually comes of visits to fortune tellers and psychics. The great beyond was of no help to Harry Robellan. All he could do was wait, while law enforcement looked into his life and background, and they looked into him hard, but nothing of value was found other than a mention of one of the officers seeing a 7-Eleven name tag on the dresser in their bedroom when he had visited their home the first time. I found it strange that, while that detail was noted in the report, that officer didn't ask Mr. Robellon about it at all. Maybe because they too realized it didn't mean much. My first job out of high school was a cashier at a grocery store, and I had about four name tags. If I'd been abducted from that store one night and murdered, and my body was found with my name tag ripped off of my uniform, you probably would have found at least one more in my car and two more at home in my bedroom. A lot can be and often is made of tiny pieces of evidence like that, and one only has to slide into a Reddit sub dedicated to the case of a missing or murdered person to see that phenomenon in action. Whole theories can spring up from tiny nuggets cobbled together, where people are convinced that someone specific just has to be guilty. He had her name tag on his dresser, and she was probably having an affair. He did it. But those pieces of evidence mean nothing here. Harry Robellan, as it turned out, went to his grave not knowing who killed his wife. He was a man who did not react as police and neighbors thought that he should have when faced with a missing wife and they didn't much like his response to hearing she'd been found dead either. He didn't cry or carry on. He simply dropped his head, the report noted, and that was it. To me, that's the reaction of a man who knew in his gut she was already gone and had spent the past two months hoping to God his gut was wrong. But he knew. My guess is, most people would. I would know. I'd know that my husband or family member wouldn't just up and leave and start a new life. I would know that. So then it just becomes a matter of waiting to hear the thing that you already know, while those same guts get all twisted up, thinking about all the hows and the whys, and all the rest of the stuff that'll keep you up at night while you wait for that news, or any news. Sadly, Harry Robellan's news came on Christmas Eve, and I suspect that every Christmas thereafter... Harry Robellan remembered that knock on his door. In the next episode, 
We'll talk suspects. Please stay tuned.